The following is a hoop ball presentation. Hi, hello, and welcome to another edition of NBA Today, uh, a hoop ball presentation. I'm your host, Corbin Ford. You can follow me at Corbin NBA. What is happening, y'all? It has been entirely too long. Yet another week without NBA basketball. I'm sure we've all been doing our best to maintain the social distancing, keep our hands clean, keep ourselves clean. <laughs> and, uh, you know, while that's been good for the overall community of our fellow people, it has been horrible in terms of NBA basketball watching fans as, you know, we have just been left in the lurch, it feels like. Uh, but news is on the horizon, and I'm excited to break that down here for you. I also have a little feature I'd like to share, a little little uh, Corbin flashback, a little, little piece of history happened a couple years back I want to kind of shed some light on for you fine folks. But first, I do have to share. Please make sure you are following HoopBall hoop-ball.com at hoopball tweets great content there uh the fantasy nba show i've still seen episodes go strong there is still content to be had and if and when nba does return that will be a welcome re uh resource for you to use so do not hesitate do not delay make sure to check out hoopball there are fine people on that side hoop-ball.com and hat at hat at Hoopball tweets. All right. Also, talk about my podcast. Talk about the many great podcasts that are on Hoopball. Definitely make sure to check out a proud partner of all Hoopball podcasts, MyBookie.ag. Use promo code today when signing up to get a fifty percent deposit match. Again, MyBookie.ag. Don't think just because there are no active sports like football, baseball, basketball that there aren't things such as you know online uh, uh, betting or, or like virtual casinos uh, you still have the Nathan's hot dog eating contest you know they are going to find themselves a way to have that hot dog eating contest All right, that's going to happen uh, there's all sorts of things that can be bet virtually even down to you know game shows and such so just keep your eyes open you know be inventive there and use mybookie.ag for all of that great inventiveness alright <laughs> like I said promo code today as in this show NBA today when signing up to get that 50% deposit match again mybookie.ag you bet you win <laughs> you get paid alright so we have some news sort of not really kind of entirely um, as we all know you know places or different states are starting to open back up or make arrangements to I don't want to say continue life as before because that we are no way, shape, or form close to, but just to get businesses operating and starting back up. Um, being that the NBA is a business, uh, you know, Adam Silver and, you know, players, commissioners, league associates have been talking and trying to come up with ideas on what to do for the season, whether you continue the season, whether the season is, is, is canceled, if it does continue, where at, what is the idea for it, you know, moves, you know, just, just basic plans to kind of continue to develop um, just business as usual if and when the a situation arises that that can be done. So, um, 
Adam Silver held a conference call with players this Friday. I'm recording this on Friday, May the 8th. This is the first episode in a couple of episodes that I've actually dated myself here, but this is when I'm recording it. And on that conference call, they addressed a wide range of topics regarding, you know, the possible completion of this season amid, obviously, the COVID-19 panic. Uh, and although there were many issues that were discussed, Silver did stress that no plans will be implemented anytime soon and that the league could possibly wait until June to make those decisions as they weigh their options. Um, one big option uh, that was actually started first by Keith Smith um, for Yahoo Sports uh, was basically having a, a bubble plan, um, having all the remaining games in one city. Uh, like Orlando or Las Vegas. Keith Smith particularly uh, mentioned uh, Disney World, if I'm, if I'm remembering that correctly. Um, and for the most part, that seems to be the most logical decision moving forward. However, um, MBPA Executive Director Michelle Roberts did tell ESPN that players have expressed concerns about being isolated from their families under strict quarantine for months at a time. And that is true. The playoffs are a grind, even without the travel that's many days away from family. And to be isolated in that type of environment can be very stressful. We have to remember that, obviously. You know, it's a game and, and where players are, are playing, but we they're people, you know, with families and being away that long is is a lot. Uh, however, it does make sense, the bubble plan that is, because it eliminates any sort of significant travel, which obviously lowers the risk of spreading the virus, but it also makes it so you can play more games in a shorter amount of time. So you're not stretching out this, you know, the playoffs like it usually is, a, a two-month grind. It can be a little more condensed. So... Many are wondering whether that meant the playoffs would have to be truncated to a three- or five-game series, but Silver said in the conference call he still hopes that the postseason, if and when it does return, will include a full seven-game series for every round. Um, this is according to Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN. Um, that would make resuming the season in a single site a lot more feasible. And the tweet from at Adrian Wojnarowski, I quote, Sources, Silver told players that he's still hopeful that the playoffs would include a seven-game series in every round. He told players that this series could move faster without the need for travel, staying in a single site, Orlando and Vegas still tops. End quote. So the NBA has not decided whether the league will try to complete this or, or move directly to the playoffs, but Silver did acknowledge that, you know, it might just be the end of the regular season. You might have to go straight to the playoffs and have the top eight teams as it stands right now on both the Eastern and Western conferences just be moved and start the season from there if and when that does return. Um, that would be a problem for teams like the Trailblazers, the Pelicans, the Spurs, and the Kings, because guess what? They were on the bubble, but they're not probably not going to get a chance to make that up if the season resumes. So there is no late push for that final spot, you know? And Silver quoted saying that there would be a series of bad options to determine how to proceed. But long story short, as a Spurs fan, if you are one, I'm not saying I am, but you know that, that 21 or 22 consecutive playoff years might come to an end. Uh, very likely if, you know, the season does return. Obviously, that is so far under the scale of importance, but I'm just bringing it up because basketball, you know? It's NBA Today. I have to cover it. Um, and that was uh, this uh, another tweet quoted from Chris Haynes. Uh, Adam Silver acknowledged there would be a series of bad options to decide on pretending to teams on bubble of making playoffs. He couldn't guarantee those teams would have a chance to earn a playoff berth if hiatus extends too far out. There we go. So that's the thing. Because you also have to remember that, like, and this is just what it is. You're planning for this season and what's going to happen here, but you're also looking forward to next season as well. And as the time gap gets closer and closer between one and the other, obviously you're going to push one back. That seems to be the prevailing thought right now. Are you going to, you know, set a certain time? How are you going to address the 2020-2021 season? You know, so it just makes a lot more sense to not have all these games be played back in and not have great basketball as is because many players don't have reasonable places to work out right now, any hoops to shoot on right now. So you have to deal with all those other optics as well. 
to then say, oh, by the way, you're in the middle of a playoff race, carry on, and then take that time and then do the playoffs. It's just a lot. It's just a lot. So that's probably not going to be something that um, those teams will have, and that's unfortunate, but obviously there's so much more going on right now that is a lot more important, a lot more scary during these times. So that's the news update for the NBA. They're obviously still hoping for it. We will see. There's a lot going on. There's teams that have already been um, allowed to test asymptomatic players and staff for the coronavirus. Um, and this is in municipalities where coronavirus testing has become readily available to at-risk health care workers. So those NBA teams that are opening facilities for voluntary workouts will be allowed to administer tests to asymptomatic players and staff. And that was sources uh, told to ESPN. So the Atlanta Magic have been approved and they plan on doing it. And the Clippers and Lakers are also among the teams expected to be allowed to conduct those coronavirus tests of all players and staff members entering facilities for those individual workouts. And that's regardless of whether or not they're expected experiencing symptoms. So that's at least a start for teams getting back in there. Uh, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti, that recently said that testing is available for all residents and not just frontline and at-risk healthcare workers. And that's important because it, it would just not leave a good taste in anyone's mouth to have, you know, entertainment, NBA, you know, players and, and other people just getting that priority access when you have people working the front lines and others who are at risk who are not having that readily available access to that testing. And that is important. And so it is good that they are saying that this testing is available for all. And that is not something that's going to be like a like a pick your uh, who's more important type situation. It's not the right wording, but that's where I'm kind of at right now. Um, the NBA recently informed teams of a limited exception to guidelines that forbid the testing of asymptomatic individuals in this preliminary phase. So essentially, the NBA approved a written authorization from a local health authority that confirms that there's been a very thorough testing um, in place for at-risk healthcare workers. So that is important. Um, there are some teams that have opened up facilities uh, this Friday that have not had testing options in place. That includes the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Portland Trailblazers. Um, they're among the teams planning to participate in the Mayo Clinic Coronavirus Antibody Study, which is an NBA and National Basketball Players Association partnership that will provide confidential test results to players within two days of the clinic receiving samples. So, you know, again, they're trying to make sure that the players are looked out for um, if the season is to continue. But NBA Commissioner Adam Silver has said there needs to be widespread testing available in the United States before the league could consider a resumption of play this season. And that is important to think about because if this is all over before the NBA even considers it, we could be looking at a much longer time period than we already have in place right now. Um, also, something that Silver mentioned that I thought was interesting is that they're trying to wonder or trying to kind of muddle out if a player does show symptoms, if they can just quarantine that player and continue the league and not have a situation where they start the league again, someone gets sick again, or someone, you know, has the misfortune of contracting this virus, and then they have to close everything down all over again. They're trying to mitigate that from happening, and so that is something that they are um, definitely monitoring and also has come into consideration. So, ultimately, I don't think this is something that happens anytime soon. I think you definitely look past all of May for certain. I think you actually look past June. And I think it happens closer to July, if I had to venture to guess. Personally, I I know it's not a popular decision, but I just think it doesn't make sense to continue the season as it is. There's too much going on. I don't think that the risk is worth the possible reward. You're already not having fans at the arenas. That's just, without question, just full stop. Not going to have fans there. And not that that's an end-all, be-all, but I'm saying if that is such an important not even distinction or barometer, but that is something that's an element of, you know, the playoffs in basketball as is. 
You have players who could possibly be away from their families for months at a time. You have so much logistics and and measuring out and and just covering bases and covering your own butts as far as the NBA and players and, you know, coaching staff and associates. It just seems like a lot of work for little payoff. Like, yes, I'm sure you don't want the NBA season to end in an asterisk. I'm sure there's teams that have older players that want to continue to play for the year and to finish strong. I'm sure there was a lot of money to be made and or lost with the determination of this decision here whether or not the season goes on. There's a lot to take into consideration. And yes, it's probably easy for me to say because I'm not the one that has to deal, you know, with the ramifications. But just from a fan's perspective and someone who's just looking at it from the outside in saying, this just doesn't seem to be worth all of the potential mistakes that can come out of this. There's just more that can go wrong than can go right. And, you know, I'm not alone. CJ McCollum, Mark Cuban, they both question the notion of return to the NBA. Uh, McCullum, an interview for Yahoo Sports or with Yahoo Sports, expressed confidence in the steps the Blazers have taken, but said he wasn't sure the efforts have were warranted. Basically said, I'm worried like the rest of the world, but I like that it is optional, and I'm pleased with the caution, structure, and measure that measures that the Blazers organization has put in place to ensure the safest environment possible for all parties involved. I get the measures the league is taking, but you have to think at some point, when there are drastic measures that need to be taken, is it really worth it? It's either safe or it's not. Cuban spoke um, on ESPN Radio's Freddie and Fitzsimmons, and he framed the issue in terms of whom players, coaches, and trainers trust with their lives. Seriously, if you're a player, who do you trust with your life, Cuban said. If you're a coach or a trainer or anybody for that matter, that's essential personnel for getting something back together. Do you trust the hotel that we're going to stay at to keep everything safe, the technology they're using, the protocols they're using? Who do you trust with your life, he repeated. That's a big question to ask somebody, but we all make decisions like that every day. Do you stay in? Do you go out? What do you do? Where do you go for your groceries? All these things, how do you do it? And then McCullum also downplayed the urgency of players needing to get back to the gym. He said, let's just be honest, man. It's not like it'll be the first time players got gym access outside of the team's facilities. Some people have been working out, if we're being honest. So, you know, you have that as well. And all of this just makes for one complicated situation, as this entire time is. I mean, just in general, not even from a basketball-centric scope. There is a lot going on, a lot of different pieces, a lot of concerns, a lot of worries, a lot of things that have to be taken into account. That It is what it is there. And, you know, from an NBA, putting my NBA glasses back on, that is something that has to be considered from all angles to ensure the safety of the players, of the coaches, of the personnel, of the fans, of everyone. And, you know, we hope that a good decision will, will come soon for all of that. All right, so I do have a, a little, like I said, piece of history Little little thing I like to share. This is May the eighth, and uh, you know, on in this month, I was gonna say on this day, but that's not true. In this month, <laughs> uh, seven years and six days ago, on May second, two thousand thirteen, the Minnesota Timberwolves decided not to exercise their option on the contract of executive David Kahn. Now you may be wondering, who who is David Kahn? What's going on? What, what, who is he? Like, why, why do I care? What, what, what does that matter, right? Right? I get it. I get it. I understand. Well, guess what? Uh, three years ago, your boy wrote a very detailed piece on David Kahn, why you should know about him. And, you know, it's an analysis of one of the worst general managers in NBA history. And, you know, I just figured the time is ripe, uh, maybe a couple of days ago, to kind of be timely on the exact date 
seven years ago would have been better, but, you know, I do what I can, you know? This NBA today, uh, today being when I record, and, you know, we all just trying to make it out here together, so <laughs> cut me some slack, y'all. <laughs> but I'm going to share this piece here with y'all, okay? And we're going to break down David Kahn and why you should know about him and what he did, and it's going to be pretty extensive, so let's get down to it. All right, so incompetent general managers are as common in the NBA as three-point plays. Just, they're all over. Wes Unseld, Isaiah Thomas, Billy King... These are infamous GMs from the past who've just made horrific mistakes and ran their franchises into the ground at various points in their career. Doc Rivers, Jim Paxson, Gar Foreman, Phil Jackson. We've also, you know, known of these uh, more recent examples of upper mismanagement that easily come to mind. However, there was one front office executive who was and remains a very interesting personality. His work leaves questions even now, and the depths he sank the franchise to at the time that he worked for were not normally seen in NBA history. His name, you guessed it, is David Kahn. David Kahn was general manager of the Minnesota Timberwolves from May 2009 through May 2013. You gotta love that congruency. Kahn was a relative unknown outside of those in NBA circles prior to his ascent to the front office. Just before being hired for Minnesota, he worked as a sports writer. He worked with NBC Sports as a consultant. He was an associate law firm. He worked in the associate GM for the Indian and Pacers. He worked with the MLB. He worked with the NBDL, NBA Developmental League, NBA G League. He did all of this. Jack of all trades, not really a master of anything. But despite this general lack of NBA executive experience, Timberwolves owner Glenn Taylor welcomed him with open arms. And to be fair, Khan said the right things to begin with. Trying to build a championship contender, trying to make healthy habits, trying to take a young team and build them up with the pieces needed to succeed, you know? But everything went downhill from there. During Khan's tenure, Minnesota finished a combined 89 wins to 223 losses. That is a 28-win percentage. That is a league worse. He was known for the grief he caused with repeated short-sighted and misguided moves, and his work, especially in retrospective, is even more painful. So what I'm going to do right now is break down, or attempt to, give you a comprehensive breakdown of all of the personnel moves that Khan made with the gift of hindsight. Each move of Khan's will be broken down year by year, and we're going to highlight particularly egregious decisions here. So, the first egregious decision was May 22nd, 2009, when David Khan was hired by the Minnesota Timberwolves. So, Khan's first move was to trade Randy Foy and Mike Miller to the Washington Wizards in exchange for Alexei Perkaroff, Darius Gonzala, Ian Thomas, and a 2009 first-round pick. Now, this was a very good move in retrospect. Khan traded two decent rotation players in exchange for three expiring contracts and a high, fifth overall, first rounder. The move left Minnesota with increased flexibility and a very good asset, if nothing else. During the 2009 draft, Khan selected Ricky Rubio fifth, Johnny Flynn sixth, Ty Lawson 18th, Wayne Ellington 28th, Nick Calathis 45th, and Hank Norell 47th. Whew! Khan entered the 2009 NBA draft with a whopping four first round picks two in the top ten. Blake Griffin was a definite first overall pick, followed by Hashim the Beat, that was questionable, then James Harden, then Tyree Gavins. There was still a lot of talent on the board when the Timberwolves went to pick with the fifth selection. You had guards Ricky Rubio, a guy named Stephen Curry, Johnny Flynn, and Brandon Jennings, who were all available. You also had a, a guard by the name of DeMar DeRozan, as well as big man Jordan Hill. So, needing a point guard, Khan selected Ricky Rubio with the fifth pick. Now, this was a solid pick, as Rubio was highly intriguing with his electrifying playmaking, and you know the pizzazz that he came with into the NBA. However, there were question marks with Rubio over his lack of a consistent jump shot, as well as his contractual obligations overseas. Because of the potential complications of getting Rubio over right away, the Timberwolves drafted point guard Johnny Flynn 6th right after Rubio. The Golden State Warriors selected Steph Curry 
just one pick later. This was a slightly more confusing selection, because when Khan was up to pick, when he picked Flynn, Curry was still on board, and while there were questions surrounding whether or not he was a point guard or a shooting guard, there was no question that Curry could shoot the ball. That was not the case with Flynn, as he not only lacked a consistent jumper, but he was also a shaky fit alongside Rubio. Neither could play off ball, and that would be a problem if the two ever shared the floor together. So Khan followed that pick with the 18th, which was Ty Lawson, possibly the best point guard in the 2009 draft at the time. However, Khan had already agreed to send Lawson to Denver for a future first-rounder. More on that later. Um, this was interesting because at the time, Denver was a perennial playoff team, with no indication that they would ever convey anything more than a middling first-rounder to Minnesota. It's not like anyone saw them tanking any time in the near future. This wasn't the, the process 76ers, if, if I'm being frank. Even after all that, Khan still had the 20th pick, which he was on Wayne Ellington, who was a sweet shooter who Khan imagined would give the Wolves some wing depth. The two second-round picks that were used were on Nick Calathis, a combo guard, and Hank Norell, a little-known big man. Calathis only played two years in the NBA, none from Minnesota, while Norell never spent a minute in the league. Alright, so the following I'm about to just ramble off here are some minor trades that Khan made, mostly to free up extra cap space as well as to just acquire aspiring contracts. Basically, what I would do in NBA 2K My GM mode. Alright, so he traded Mark Madsen, Craig Smith, and Sebastian Telfair to the Los Angeles Clippers for Quinton Richardson. Then he traded Eton Thomas, a 2010 second-round pick, which was Dexter Pittman, and an additional 2010 second-round pick, who would become Magnum Roll, to the Oklahoma City Thunder for Chucky Atkins and Damian Wilkins. Shortly after acquiring Quentin Richardson, Minnesota traded him to the Miami Heat for center Mount Blount. Then Minnesota traded Bobby Brown and Darius Gonsaila, Sangaila to the New Orleans Hornets for Antonio Daniels. So now the following are free agent signings that Khan made in 2009. So he signed Ryan Hollins, Ramon Sessions, Sasha Pavlicic, Jason Hart, Alonzo G, and Devin Green. Hart was later traded to the Phoenix Suns for Alondo Tucker, Cash, and a 2010 second-round pick. Hamidi Nya was selected. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Devin Green and Alondo Tucker alongside Alonzo G were later waived. Khan also traded a second-rounder to Dallas for Nathan Jawai, a rarely-used big man that Khan would send to the D-League for uh, Sioux Falls off and on over the next year. Dallas did not receive the second-rounder because it was top 55 protected. And that will conclude all the transactions in 2009. We got three more years, y'all. Stay with me. So 2010. Khan's first trade of 2010 was to send Brian Cardinal to the New York Knicks for Darko Milicic and Cash. More on this one later. They later re-signed Cardinal after he was waived by the Knicks. Khan also signed Greg Stiesma. This was his last personnel move before the draft. So first year under David Khan, Minnesota Timbers played horribly. They finished the 2009-2010 season with 15 wins to 67 losses. Khan sought a faster, more free-flowing offense than what was in place when he arrived, but unfortunately, due to injury and poor personnel fit, he did not get his desired result. The Timberwolves finished 20th of 30 in points per game at 98.2, and they couldn't stop anyone on the other end, giving up 107.8 points per game, good for second to last in the league. With the high-projected pick heading to the 2010 draft, David Khan was in a position to start to make things right. The Timberwolves were armed with five draft picks in 2010, three in the first round and one in the top five. The 2010 draft room loomed with talent, the likes of John Wall, Derek Favors, and Demarcus Cousins. There was also intriguing talent in Evan Turner, Greg Monroe, and Al Farouk Aminu. Paul George and Gordon Hayward were also in the top ten. However, Khan decided to go in a completely different direction and selected Wesley Johnson, the high-flying shooting guard from Syracuse, with the fourth overall pick. Johnson was known for his athleticism, and he had solid, long-range shooting ability. He averaged 16.5 points per game on 50% shooting, 41% from three-point range during his final season at Syracuse. However, he was already 23, 
had very shaky ball handling and passing skills, and offered little in the way of development. In addition, the troubled but immensely talented DeMarcus Cousins was selected just one pick after, a fact that seems even more glaring in hindsight. Then with the 16th pick from Denver, in the Ty Lawson trade the year before, Khan selected Luke Babbitt. Shortly thereafter, he packaged Babbitt and Ryan Gomes and traded them to Portland for Martel Webster. Webster was a decent wing, but was just coming off a back injury that would hinder his play for years to come, and that transaction would cause contentious relations between Khan and Portland for the rest of his tenure. Khan selected Trevor Book with the 23rd pick, Paulo Prestes with the 45th pick, and Hamadi Nya with the 56th pick. He then traded Booker and Nya to the Washington Wizards for Lazar Hayward, who Washington picked 30th, and Nemanja Bielitsa. Hayward didn't pass didn't last past his rookie contract, Presti's never played in the NBA, and Bielitsa didn't join Minnesota until well after Khan was gone. Khan made two notable signings in the early days of free agency. The first was Nikola Pekovic, who was signed to a four-year, $13 million deal. Then he followed that with extending Darko an offer that he could not refuse. A four-year, $20 million deal with a partial guarantee on that fourth year. The signing was met with almost universal ridicule the minute the ink was dried, and Khan would spend the rest of the offseason defending him, even going so far as to loosely compare Darko to Chris Webber in a marvel of an interview that you just have to check out on YouTube. It is particularly cringeworthy. Um, also, I will try to have the link available, but if you're looking for the most cringeworthy interaction between Khan and Webber, check out 3 minutes and 35 seconds into the video. I'll have the link. It is very awkward. So... These were Khan's words in the wake of his dismissal on Darko and what um, he did to receive such a contract. So, I'm going to quote here. Darko. Who played Darko? Kurt Rambis and David w Dave Wool both were big proponents of making the trade. And once we obtained Darko, I could see what they were talking about. Darko has enormous skills. Both Kurt and Bill Lambeer played the big man position in the league, and they felt that if he ever worked out for him psychologically, he could be one of the top three or four centers in the league. And again, the risk point was quite low when we made the trade, and even the contract we gave him that many people talked about was really no more than a backup center gets in our league this, these days, about $4 million a year. We didn't pay him as a starting center, even though we had him ticketed as our starting center. So I think there were some reasons to do it, and I recognize those reasons even today. One of the things I wish we had done a better job of there was, I only learned after he left, I think there was some family pressures. He had so many visitors, so many family members here at times, that there was a lot of pressure and stress in his life that maybe would have been a lot to overcome. End quote. On July 12th of 2010, Khan made a move that could be deemed actually kind of smart, saying a 2012 second-round pick, Bojan Bogdanovic, was selected, as well as a 2014 second-rounder, Markel Brown, was selected, along with Cash, to Miami in exchange for the talented, but interesting, Michael Beasley. B-Easy Michael Beasley was a former second-round pick in 2008 out of Kansas. He had had an amazing college career, but had been rather underwhelming since then in the NBA particularly struggling to be a second option to Dwayne Wade. Even so, he had just come off of a season where he averaged 17.9 points and 7-point rebounds a night. The Heat had just acquired LeBron James and Chris Bosh, and they were in the process of shedding salary to make that happen. Khan saw the opportunity to gain a young prospect in Beasley, who was 21 at the time, at a low price point, while operating just under the salary cap. I think it's a decent move. Did Beasley fulfill his promise? Obviously not. But at the time, one could look at that and go, okay, young, talented asset, for a low price of a couple of future picks and second rounders at that and some cash? Sure, why not? Khan then followed that trade with another just a day later. Basically sending Al Jefferson to Utah for Costa Kufis, a 2011 first round pick, Donatus Montayunas was selected, and a 2012 first rounder, where Terrence Jones was selected. 
Khan wanted the Wolves to be even more exciting with a more spread offense, and he didn't like the awkward and cramped fit between Jefferson and young big man Kevin Love. This was before Love had developed a reliable shot from three, so neither could really space the floor. Um, and the move both shed salary as well as attained draft picks that he would inev- inevitably flip. <laughs> but more on that later. In late July, Khan signed Luke Ridenauer, a dependable backup point guard, to a four-year, $16 million deal. That season, he would shoot a career-high 44% from three-point range. Khan later traded Ryan Hollins, Ramon Sessions, and a 2013 second-round pick, Jeff Witte was selected, to the Cleveland Cavaliers in exchange for Sebastian Telefair, who Khan had traded just last year, and Delonte West. West was immediately waived. Right, so the following are remaining free agent signings that Khan made in 2010. He signed Anthony Tolliver, Sundiata Gaines, Maurice Ager, and Jason Hart. Ager, Gaines, and Hart were later waived. Right, 2011. We are midway through here, y'all. The Timberwolves' first major transaction of 2011 was massive, as they were one of the three teams involved in the mega Carmelo Anthony trade to New York. There were a lot of moving pieces in that deal, but for their part, the Wolves traded Corey Brewer to the Knicks and Costa Kufis to the Nuggets. The Nuggets sent a 2015 second-round pick to Minnesota, Rashawn Holmes was selected, and the Knicks sent Eddie Curry, Anthony Randolph, and Cash to the Wolves. Curry was immediately waived. The Timberwolves finished the 2010-2011 season with only a very small improvement, going from 15-67 to 17-65. They did pick up the pace, finishing among the tops in the league. They also finished 10th in points per game at 101.1, but again, couldn't stop anybody, giving up 107.7 points a night, finishing dead last in the league. Khan gave a State of the Wolves address toward the end of the season, which is kind of hilarious to look back in retrospect. Um, Also, he gave a hilarious note where he basically was questioned about how he feel he did with the team, and he basically said, show of hands, asking the audience, asking the reporters to give him a, a sign of support for how they must surely feel that he did a good job with the team. And mind you, he didn't get a lot of hands in it, but it was hilarious. Check it out, too. Another great David Kahn gem event interview. Uh, it just, again, seemed to illustrate the view that Kahn saw that the rest of us just couldn't make out. Just such a sunny disposition that, for some reason, we were blinded to, apparently. Alright, so, now we move on to the 2011 NBA Draft. Now, the 2011 NBA Draft possessed a respectable class of talent, with players such as Kyrie Irving, Derek Williams, Brandon Knight, Kemba Walker, and the immortal Jimmer Fredette among the ranks. The Timberwolves held the second pick in the draft, and Khan was enamored with Derek Williams from Arizona. Williams, at six foot eight and 241 pounds, was an athletic specimen who could jump out of the gym. He rose to national attention his sophomore season as he averaged 19.5 points and 8.3 rebounds while claiming second-team All-America accolades. Khan felt that Williams could be an exhilarating front-court talent that would add more youth and athleticism to a decent assemblage in place in Minnesota. Unfortunately, the front court for Minnesota was already packed with Kevin Love at power forward and Michael Beasley at small forward, and he too could move up a position. Williams was more comfortable playing power forward and would be miscast at the three with his specific skill set. Regardless, Khan remained undaunted and selected Williams, who had only averaged 10 points and 5 rebounds in three seasons with Minnesota. In retrospect, Khan could have given a closer look at Clay Thompson, Kawhi Leonard, or even one of the Kansas Twins in Marquis for Marcus Morris. But no, Derek Williams, which, I mean, in 2011, I was pretty high on Derek Williams, too. I also had not followed uh, the NBA nearly as close as I would hope David Kahn did, just scouting and everything. But, you know, who cares about those such little details there, right? With the 20th pick, one Minnesota acquired in the out-Jefferson trade, 
Minnesota selected DeMontis Montayunas and then immediately moved him along with Johnny Flynn and a 2012 second round pick who later became Will Barton to the Houston Rockets for Brad Miller, Nikola Mirotic, Nikola Mirotic, sorry, Chandler Parsons and a 2013 first rounder who would later become Andre Roberson. So this move, this jet, jettisoning of uh, Johnny Flynn would bring an end to Flynn's Minnesota career and hasten the end of his NBA career. Flynn averaged an underwhelming 10.2 points and 4 assists per game while dealing with a string of injuries mostly to his hip. His PR was a low 11.3, while his warp was a minus 2.3 during his time in Minnesota. He would be out of the NBA by 2013. Khan was not done willing and dealing, though. He immediately traded, he immediately traded Nikola Mirotic to the Chicago Bulls for Norris Cole, Malcolm Lee, and Cash. Right after that, he traded Norris Cole to the Miami Heat for Bojan Bogdanovic. He then traded Bogdanovich to the New Jersey Nets for cash and a 2013 second-round draft pick who would become Malcolm Lee. He closed out his draft trading frenzy by sending Chandler Parsons to the Houston Rockets for cash. Now, these moves were already confusing at the time, but have become more confounding as time has gone on, particularly for this reason. It is not known whether this is a mandate from the front office, although it could be assumed as such, but Khan made all these moves to cut costs and free up enough money to buy out embattled coach Kurt Rambis from his contract. This follows a common theme in many of Khan's transactions, ridding himself of talent to cut cost. In the coming years, Cole, Miritic, Bajanovic, and Parsons would have relatively productive seasons in their careers that would have certainly helped Minnesota. Instead, Khan received a lone second-round pick for those four, as well as a couple million dollars to pay a coach to go away. Shortly after the draft, Khan traded a 2015 second-round pick, who would become the previously mentioned Rashawn Holmes, to the Portland Trailblazers for the pick that was Tange Nugumbo. However, it became apparent that Khan did not do his due diligence in scouting, as it was discovered that Nagumbo was ineligible to be drafted due to being 26 years old. Now, we're going to go to something slightly more positive. How much of a hand in this is unknown, but Khan should be given some credit in making a solid coaching hire with the hire of Rick Adelman on September 12th. Adelman was a very successful coaching legend with a number of teams, most notably in Portland, Sacramento, and Houston, and would have relative success in Minnesota in spite of Khan's efforts. Khan made one final trade in 2011, sending Lazar Hayward, who only played 42 games with the Wolves, to the Oklahoma City Thunder in exchange for Robert Vaden, a 2012 second-round pick, Robbie Hummel was selected, and a 2013 second-round pick. Bojan Dublicic was selected. I hope I am not butchering names, though. Khan closed out 2011 with two free agent signings, Jose Barea and Bonzi Wells. Wells was waived less than a month later. So now we're on to 2012. The Wolves finished the strike short season with a 26-40 and 40 record, a marked improvement over the previous season, even with the adjusted schedule. Adelman's presence had much to do with the positive trajectory, as the Wolves still finished in the top 10 in points scored per game, while also improving their defensive play slightly to 25th in the league. They were 4th in the league in pace and a middle-of-the-pack 104.3 offensive rating. In June, Khan traded a 2012 first-round pick, the aforementioned Terrence Jones, to the Houston Rockets for Chase Budinger and Lior Elihu. Having no draft pick in the 2012 draft due to a trade made in 2005, shout out to Marco Yaric and Lionel Chambers, the Wolves actually had a relatively uneventful draft night. The Wolves did have a second round pick though, and with it, I already mentioned they drafted Purdue's Robbie Hummel, a solid but often injured small forward. July 2012 was a very busy month for Khan, and he started with a move that should have happened long ago. On July 12th, Khan waived Darko Milicic, confirming what we all knew. That signing was a major botch. The next day, Khan sent Brad Miller, a 2013 second round draft pick, Lorenzo Brown was later selected, and a 2016 second rounder, 
Rade Zegara was selected to the New Orleans Hornets for a 2017 second rounder that was top 55 protected and did not convey. On that same day, in an unrelated transaction, the Wolves waived the often injured Martel Webster. Later that month, Khan traded Wayle Ellingston straight up to the Memphis Grizzlies for Dante Cunningham. Then came the massive trade that Khan seemed to love. As part of a three-team trade, Minnesota sent Wesley Johnson, a 2016 second rounder, the aforementioned Rade Zagorov was selected, and a 2017 second rounder, a 2016 second rounder, a 2017 second rounder, Semi Ojale was selected to the Phoenix Suns. In return, the Wolves received a 2013 second rounder, the aforementioned Lorenzo Brown, and the same in the same second rounder they had just shipped to Phoenix, the return of Roddy Zagorov from New Orleans. The Wolves also received a 2014 second rounder in addition, which was Johnny O'Brien, who was later selected from Phoenix. So, this trade concluded the Minnesota portion of Wesley Johnson's career. Johnson had a very poor two seasons for the Timberwolves, especially for someone drafted so high. He never developed any advanced passing skills or moves off the dribble, and thus reduced him to a shooting specialist who was subpar at shooting, which is kind of the worst when you really think about it. Johnson finishes Wolves' tenure with averages of 7.7 points, 2.4 rebounds, and 1.4 assists per game. In his two seasons with Minnesota, he failed to average as much as 10 points a game and a 0.4 VORP. That, and the fact that Khan had to package Johnson with two picks just to get rid of him, should tell you all you need to know about the Wesley Johnson experience in Minnesota. So now the following are the plethora of free agent signings that Khan made during the 2012-2013 offseason. Alexi Schled, Andre Karolinko, Brandon Roy, fresh out of retirement because of his degenerative knee concerns, Greg Stizma, Lou Amundsen, Will Conroy, Jermaine Taylor, Mike Harris, and Chris Johnson, along with Josh Howard, all signed. Conroy, Taylor, Harris, Johnson, and Howard were all later waived. In an interesting twist, the Wolves re-signed the previously traded Lavar Lazar Hayward on the last day of the year. He played four more games and was waived a little over a week later. One last bit of business occurred during the 2012 season, and it wasn't a particularly small piece of business. 23-year-old Kevin Love, fresh off of averaging 24 points and 14 rebounds per game, signed a four-year extension that included an opt-out after the third. This was not Love's desired option, as he preferred the full five-year extension, committing himself as the face of the franchise. For reasons never clearly disclosed, Khan pushed for a shorter deal. This would have larger ramifications later for the Wolves, long after Khan had departed. 2013 David Khan made just four more moves in 2013, signing both Mikel Gallabelli and the previous waived Chris Johnson to two 10-day contracts each before moving to sign them for the rest of the season. He also waived both Lou Amundsen as well as Brandon Roy, who only played six games before his knees betrayed him again, this time for good. Khan was relieved of his duties on May 2, 2013, as the Timberwolves decided not to exercise their option on his contract. In the wake of his departure, Khan still felt that he had left the Timberwolves in a better position to contend for a championship, which left everyone very much befuddled. The Wolves would go on to finish 31-51. and 51. Khan made many signings and trades and promises during his tenure, only to end well short of the playoffs. The championship aspirations that Khan spoke of were never close to being approached. In closing a 2010 letter to fans, Khan thanked the fans for their patience. NBA fans as a whole, and Wolves fans in particular, had to be long-suffering, and even now must continue to exhibit that quality with every Curry 3 or Cousins dunk. Even after all these years, one can't help but relive the wrath of Khan. I gotta run through the final records of the Timberwolves in each year of Khan's tenure. Just one more time for the roll. One more time for my LA folks. 2010, Wolves finished 15 and 67. 2011, Wolves finished 17 and 65. 2012, Wolves finished 26 and 40. And 2013, 
the Wolves finished 31 and 51. If there is any silver lining, the Wolves did improve their win total each year. And to still finish well short of even sniffing the playoffs, I think is the biggest thing, or biggest mark, if you will, of David Kahn's legacy as a whole. Alright, y'all, that was a lot. Uh, Hope I broke that down pretty entertainingly, hopefully clearly, because some of those names, I I totally think I butchered, and I feel really bad about that, but uh, I hope I did my best. I didn't hope I did my best. I did my best, y'all. I did my best, y'all. I just hope it was a a good, interesting piece, and that you walk away with this, learning a little bit more about David Kahn, uh, for those who didn't, and just how um, interesting of a person he was. I tell you, please go on YouTube, look up David Kahn interviews. He gives some of the most literally entertaining interviews. I've never seen someone so just on a different wavelength of where his team and where the talent that he has is in relation to what literally anyone else sees. It is it is so jarring and so different that it's fun to watch and, and look back on. So make sure you do that. All right, so I'll be back with y'all real soon. Did not forget the NBA time machine. I just had to come with some news, and I thought this was an interesting piece of uh, just entertainment, a little bit of content i like to share with y'all, so I had to get that done. Still got stuff going on. You know, we're all kind of in that wait-and-see process. You know, we're all just here. Like I said, waiting to see what happens. So uh, definitely stay cool. Keep your hands clean. Maintain the social distancing even as things start to open up. Let's not get too crazy and get in the same situation three months down the line. Let's do our best. I mean, that's all we can do, you know? But until then, y'all, this is Corbin Ford. You can follow me at CorbinNBA. This has been NBA Today, a HoopBall presentation. Again, make sure you follow HoopBall at HoopBallTweets and Hoop-Ball.com. Check it out. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. That would be just greatly appreciated. And take care, all right? All right, y'all. This has been a Hoop Ball presentation.